Hello, and thank you very much for joining us uh, for another Betting People episode. This week, I have a very special guest. Um, you might well have seen him and seen some of his work in The Guardian. You might well have seen him on Twitter um, talking about the gambling industry at large. I'm joined by the author of Jackpot, How Gambling Conquered Britain, Rob Davis. Thank you very much, Rob, for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Much appreciated. Um, so... You're quite well known, um, I think, in gambling industry circles, but uh, some of the people watching might not um, know exactly who you are. So give us a bit of a personal background on yourself and how you ended up writing about gambling. Sure. So um, I'm a business reporter. I've been a business reporter for about 12 or 13 years at a number of newspapers. Um, ended up at The Guardian in 2015. Um, and after about a year there, I was asked to look at what they call uh, the sins beat. So the sins would be alcohol, uh, tobacco and gambling. Um, that's not an official title, I stress. It's just a sort of an informal uh, description of those areas. Um, and so I started writing about gambling, not having known a great deal about it before, not having a huge amount of personal experience of gambling. I'd never been a gambler really myself. Um, I had briefly written about gambling for the Daily Mail many years ago um, and been actually been taken to Ascot by, uh, by Ladbrokes, which I think some people who know my work now would probably be surprised by. Um, and I started writing about the gambling industry around the time that fixed odds betting terminals became sort of headline news. Um, ended up writing a great deal about those. Um, and I've never looked back really. And I've been doing it for about five or six years. Got to the point where I thought I've written enough stories to fill a book, so I might as well write a book. Um, and how have your views in general um, on the industry evolved during that time? Because your beats is covered across a lot of change. And as you know, we were in the Fobti era, and now in the era of. Um, not, on, not only arguments about um, harm prevention, et cetera, but also on the other side, state restrictions, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I wondered how your views have evolved through that period. I think my views have become more nuanced than they used to be. I know that, you know, for, the, for those people out there who follow my Twitter account and, and so on, I, you know, I sometimes get a reputation as being a bookie basher or being anti-gambling. I, I don't think those things are true, although people are entitled to their opinion. I think when I started out, I was probably more down that road, especially with fixed odds betting terminals, because I just, I couldn't really see a social benefit to, to those machines. And, you know, I spent time in bookies in wherever it was, Newham High Street, Birmingham, various other places, watching people play fobties. And I just saw so much uh, misery and distress. And it, it, you know, it didn't strike me as an activity that could be compared with, say, enjoying horse racing, where, you know, there's clearly a sort of a long centuries old tradition there and, you know, and, and lots that goes along with it other than just sort of dumbly sticking a few quid in every few seconds hoping to get something back. So, yeah, when I started off, I, I think I was pretty much 100% critical and I think I didn't understand some of the nuances about, you know, different elements of the industry and what a diverse industry it was. Um, and as I started to learn more, I think I've tried to draw a distinction between the parts of the industry where there is behavior that I and many of my readers would think of as being predatory um, and the parts of the industry that, that aren't like that or, or where less of that behavior goes on. 
Um, I think what tends to happen is, you know, you get tarred with the brush um, that you sort of start out with. So I think a lot of people think that because of, uh, you know, how, how vocal and how critical I could be maybe four or five years ago that, that my views haven't really changed. I, you know, I, I, that's not really the case. I think these days I know a lot more people within the industry than I, than I used to. And I have some of those kind of back channel conversations with people about the way things are. And, I, you know, I think I understand, um, you know, point, different points of view, more different points of view than, than once I did. Um, at the same time, I'm a journalist. We write about when things go wrong. We don't write about things when they go right. I mean, that's kind of the nature of, of the beast, right? You, you, mm. Every ship that sails doesn't have a news story written about it, but everyone that sinks does. So, um, you know, I think for that reason, we sort of get seen as, as being a bit negative. Um, I think people have to accept that that's sort of part of the part of the game. That's part of the way um, news coverage works. Um, See, so yeah, my views have changed. I think writing the book, I, you know, I've tried to be even-handed where I can be, but ultimately, I spend so much of my time talking to people who've been harmed by gambling that it's difficult not to have your view sort of coloured by that to an mm -hmm. extent. Um, going on to sort of uh, gambling harm in this general area. Um, we're now coming up to, or in the midst of a gambling review, um, and it's really tied in with a lot of the work that you've been doing. Um, what do you think the gambling review might achieve, and what would you want it to? What, what would uh, you know a sort of refreshed industry look like? Is there anything in particular that you'd want to see? I mean, I think there's broad agreement from the people who who are perhaps more within what some may consider the anti-gambling camp, whether that's people who want reform, mm. and from within the industry that something needs to change, right? The law that currently governs gambling was written in 2005. Uh, it was implemented in 2007. And the iPhone was invented and hit the market in 2006. So you're talking about a legislative landscape that exists without really the concept of uh, you know, being able to gamble via a personal device um, written into it. So I think, you know, what we need to see now isn't, doesn't necessarily need to be um, affected by legislation. There's plenty that can be done now, incidentally, via the Gambling Commission and so on. But I don't want to sort of get into the trap of writing out a personal manifesto of how, what I would like to see in gambling reform. I'm not the Minister for Gambling. I haven't sat there and received all the evidence from everybody um, about it. I mean, I look, I think there are a few areas that are being looked at that I think, depending on how you did them, might be profitable. So the idea of a gambling ombudsman, so that way in those situations where you get a dispute between a customer and a, a company over social responsibility and things like that. At the moment, the Gambling Commission just decides whether there's been a license breached. It doesn't really intervene, um, you know, in that kind of sort of focal point where harm may have occurred um, and where somebody maybe needs some kind of reimbursement or retribution or, so, or something like that. So I think gambling ombudsman might be a good idea. Um, I think, I know affordability checks are the big hot button issue, right? And I know a lot of people in the horse racing industry are worried about that, this idea that, you know, the government's going to intrude into your uh, sort of personal financial affairs if, if, you, if you want to get a bet on. I think part of that reluctance is informed by the suggestion in one or two 
um, documents that have been written that, that the affordability checks come in at 100 pounds. I don't think that is realistic and I don't think it's necessarily desirable and I don't think that's what we're going to see happen. Um, however, I do think there probably is a level of whether it's deposit or loss, um, you know, depending on how you want to, to calculate it, at which we do need to be more careful about whether people are gambling more than they can afford. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that the gambling minister will be looking at that. Single customer view is an interesting one. Um, I think that's one that a lot of punters will be very cynical about. Single customer view is basically the idea that instead of one company deciding whether or not you're displaying signs of a problem gambling, everybody's sharing the information. So you can't just, if you, if you are an addict and you got sh get shut down by one company, you can't just go and gamble somewhere else and experience the same harm that you would have done. You know, the idea of single customer view is that everybody's sharing this information that flags up, you know, that you're chasing your losses at, at 3 a.m. On, on the slot machines or something. I think a lot of horse racing punters that I've spoken to will definitely feel that that's going to be used uh, to help companies more efficiently shut down uh, winning punters. I think, you know, the answer to that potentially is to make that a third part, have a third party involved in that rather than allowing um, uh, the companies to do that, to, to, to be in charge of that themselves. Um, what else? I mean, I think, look, funding for treatment is certainly a big issue, putting that in the hands of the NHS, making sure that GPs understand gambling addiction, because at the moment, so many addicts I speak to have been to their GP, it's their first port of call. The GP knows about nicotine addiction, they know about alcoholism, but they haven't got the first clue about gambling addiction. They don't know how to spot the signs or where to send people. So I think that's another important element. I mean, we could we could sit here all day talking about stuff that might be in the gambling review. I, look, I don't have a crystal ball. Um, I think there will be significant change. I think it'll fall somewhere in the middle of what most of the reform campaigners want and what the industry would like. Um, now, an interesting uh, question I got posed with somebody else sort of when I did some research was, you've spoken a lot about gambling uh, regulation, particularly in Britain. Um, is there a country, is there an example where you think there's been the right balance struck between uh, stopping harm uh, prevention and still allowing people who want to gamble um, sort of get on with things relatively uninterrupted? Is, is there any country comes to mind with that? I'm, I'm, no, I'm not sure I can point to a country and say they've got it right. I mean, these, this regulation of a complex and diverse industry like gambling is incredibly complicated, right? And, you know, I was critical of the Gambling Act earlier, but fair play to the UK, they're one of the first countries to really try and get a grip on this and to try to try to do it. And, you know, we didn't see that necessarily in other countries. I think there are countries where it's obviously gone wrong. Australia would be a good example of that, I think. I don't, you know, the idea of a sort of a, um, an institution that is essentially a bookmaker and a pub at the same time doesn't seem to be erring on the right side of caution to me. Um, and I think there are legitimate points being made by people in, in the industry that where gambling is entirely prohibited or extremely strictly regulated, you have seen um, the black market profit from that. Um, so no, I, look, I don't know if there are, if there are, I think there are countries where there have been measures implemented that some people would want to see in the UK. I mean, there are prohibitions on um, gambling around, gambling advertising around sport in I think Spain and Italy if I'm right in saying it. And I think there are, you know, definitely arguments to be made for that. You know, where you draw the line is, is probably a matter of personal taste. Um, 
But uh, no, I, I couldn't single out a country. I think the one that's going to be really interesting will be the US. Because as you know, that's the huge growth market right now after the Supreme Court decision. And you know, when has the US ever really shown an appetite for helping people who fall through uh, society's safety nets, threadbare safety nets and experience harm? They certainly don't do that in terms of treating people who are ill. So, um, you know, I'll be fascinated to see where that goes. Um, there are some people who do make their living from gambling, um, professional punters and the like. And I just wanted to, to ask in general, um, where do you think they might end up sort of um, post sort of review in, in general? Because some have issues getting on now, um, for example, and some are also sort of really vulnerable sort of to the backlash that we've had from some operators recently in terms of limiting stakes. Do you, do you think there's a place for professional gamblerism in, in this system? And if so, what might it be? I realize it's an open-ended question because we don't know exactly where the chip yeah. cars will fall, but what's your thoughts generally on that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's not something I've considered that much until recently because for obvious reasons, you know, yeah. as, a, as a news reporter, you're sort of trying to unearth um, instances of social injustice and things like that that need to be put right and you know top of people's list of priorities of who needs help you know is not professional gamblers by and large but I have become more interested in that in in the last few months in particular especially after writing about stake factoring you know the the, the mechanisms by which uh, people's um, ability to bet a certain amount is dialed down you know mm -hmm. whether that's because they're doing something dodgy or whether it's because they're beating the price time and again I mean, I have seen arguments out there for putting some kind something into the legislation um, that forces bookies to take a bet if it's if it's honest. Um, it's not an area of legislation I've given much thought to, and I wouldn't like to express an opinion necessarily on it. I think I have seen people say, well, if you know, if the if I'm forced to give a bank statement so that I can get a bet on, well, I, I won't do that. I mean, I I'm a little set skeptical about that. I must say, I think mean, there are lots of walks of life in which you have to give over personal details in order to be able to do something, whether that's getting a mortgage or boarding a plane or or, or whatever it might be. Um, and I think, you know, if you, if you really love gambling or if you make a living from it, that's not going to be too high a barrier for you, um, I wouldn't say. Um, maybe not for maybe not for a pro punter, but but for a recreational punter, you, you know, some, some would reply, um, I'm not wanting to gamble huge amounts. I'm not wanting to get on, say, four figure sums or whatever. I, I wanted to have normal recreational bets, which would be broadly equal to the rest of my retail spend. Should I have to give um, bank statements to do that? I don't have to do that for, say, shopping or, or leisure or going out. Right. I, I understand that argument. But then I think at that point, you know, when you're talking about where the limit would be set. I mean, yeah. I mentioned £100 earlier. If it was much higher than that, you're not catching most recreational gamblers because most people are not are not you know putting those kinds of amounts on so i don't know is there a situation in which you have a cap that is sufficiently um low that it's catching uh some recreational gamblers um but it's also uh not inconveniencing professional gamblers it's you know it's quite hard as to where you set that limit but the idea that you know, the government's going to be looking over your bank statements because you put on a five pound acker at the weekend. That's not going to happen. And so, and so I think this idea that, you know, people's 
leisure activity is going to be intruded on at relatively low levels is for the birds, really. Um, and then, of course, the other point is that we were talking about a soft cap, not, yeah. not a cap where you can't gamble beyond that, right? So the idea is, in theory, you're being asked to, to mount one hurdle on one occasion or maybe once a year. I mean, if that's too much for people, I, you know, you have to question how, how important leisure activity it is to them. And I understand the civil liberties argument. I really do. But at the end of the day, this is about trying to prevent some serious harm that's going on. And I know some people will say that it's a minority of people who are being seriously harmed. There's quite a lot of people, you know, and I've spoken to a lot of them. Mm. And the vast majority of people don't want to spend their time talking to a newspaper journalist about very difficult and painful things that happened in their life, in their life, right? So the people I'm talking to are in many ways just the tip of the iceberg. So I think if, you know, if you're setting about trying to balance people's civil liberties versus um, uh, preventing harm, there's never going to be a balance that is 100% perfect. But I think people have to understand that there is a widespread feeling that the balance isn't right at the moment. It needs to be tilted uh, a little bit, bit further in the, in the favour of those who would, who would like to see, uh, you know, vulnerable people and addicts and people who can't afford it um, have a little bit more friction between themselves and losing large amounts of money to, you know, what are in many cases FTSE 100 companies that are making handsome profits at the moment. Um, one thing um, that people do talk about a lot, and, and we have also in our uh, interview here, is the gambling commission. And you said earlier that, you, you know, there, there might be sometimes more they can do. People have a lot of strong opinions regarding the gambling commission. Um, are there any changes you'd like to see made to that organisation, the way it operates? I mean, I think the key thing is more money, really. Um, I mean, this isn't just a gambling commission problem, it's a kind of UK enforcement problem. You see this with things like the Serious Fraud Office as well, and the National Crime Agency. When companies transgress the rules in the United States, they get absolutely hammered, like huge fines, hundreds of people working on these cases, and, you know, by and large, they don't do it again. In the UK, um, and I'm not talking about gambling firms here, you know, I'm talking about things like bribery and corruption and so on. Yeah. go unpunished again and again and again because we have underfunded enforcement authorities. Now, there's a bit of that going on with the Gambling Commission, and I think that probably harms both sides. I mean, there are probably um, gambling operators who would like to see the Gambling Commission be a more efficient outfit that is, uh, you know, able to explain to them exactly how and where, um, you know, the line is drawn um, mm. and, and, you know, how they can avoid crossing it. But there are times when the Gambling Commission is under-resourced and doesn't do that. By the same token, there are people who think that it's not doing enough to protect vulnerable people because it takes too long to investigate allegations um, uh, and, and the rest of it. You know, I think there's some other interesting areas. You know, the, the, at the moment, the Gambling Commission has a kind of aim to permit uh, mandate. Uh, it's written into its mandate. It's, it's, it has to aim to permit gambling where possible. Um, yeah. And I can see the reasons for that, right? We're talking about um, a leisure pursuit that is legal. Um, but at the same time, what that also means that they're always slightly playing catch up when there are products that they think are dangerous, like fixed odds betting terminals or there are some other products that are associated with high, quite high rates of harm, like virtual sports or slot machine, certain slot machine products. You know, they've always got to let that go. And it's only when they're presented with incontrovertible evidence that those uh, products are harmful that they can act. And for the most part, 
that evidence doesn't exist because the research is not being done, the work is not being done, operators are not necessarily releasing the data. Um, so I think she's actually going back to one of the points you made earlier about what could be done uh, in the Gambling Act. I think one of the things they're really looking at um, is data and about forcing companies to share that data with the regulator. Now, the regulator, as it stands, mm-hmm. will not be able to cope with receiving and passing that volume of data. So it's going to need more money. Yeah. Uh, it's going to need more resource. One thing uh, and, and one line of argument that we, we do hear a lot, um, particularly with the gang review coming up, is the is that games of chance, um, i.e. fixed betting terms, as you said, sort of high value, high loss slot products, et cetera, virtual sports, et cetera, might get um, too mixed up with essentially sports betting, events betting. It, it, as described in your book, you know, events where with reasonable amounts of sort of research and, and skill, one can give themselves, you know, a chance against a bookmaker compared to essentially um, events where the house is set to win. Do you think, and do you see the worries of operators that one product might be lumped in too much with the other and as such, you'll get an incorrect view of the industry or, or, or sort of hammers to, uh, search hammers to crack nuts, essentially, with all that? Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, I don't think that um, the biggest companies in the industry can complain too much about that. And if you're looking for people to blame, you know, my first port of call would be Entain, William Hill, uh, Flutter, because, you know, these are the guys who are, um, you know, bringing people in through football, because that's the national game and millions of people are interested in it, and then cross, cross-selling them casino products. So, you know, if, the, if anyone in the industry is going to turn around and say, look, it's unfair, we're being lumped in with these people, well, where did that start? Mm. It started with large corporations who don't necessarily have any real interest in horse racing or football or sports at all. They're run by, you know, what's what's known as C-suite executives, right? The chief executive, the chief finance officer, the chief marketing officer, whatever it is. All people whose main interest is in increasing returns for shareholders. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's their legal duty, their fiduciary duty. So, you know, I think the... the that needs to be a conversation that's had within the industry more than it is without. And it was also one, I think, it's a distinction that I think will be well understood by the people who are making these decisions. I know, you know, particularly on social media like Twitter, you've got 280 characters to express yourself. And people like me sometimes end up using slightly looser language that we maybe should, referring to the industry or whatever. You know, that's, it's not just the gambling industry that, that is affected by that, right? We're, you know, the way that we're all kind of shuttled into these very short, concise, and often quite extreme statements about things and rewarded for them on social media affects everybody. Um, so, yeah, I can see how that can be painful if, let's say, you are, you know, an on-course uh, bookmaker at, uh, at Newmarket or something, and you're being lumped in with some guys pushing virtual sports. Yeah. Yeah, that I can see how that would be upsetting. Um, but I don't think it's the fault of the, the commentariat or politicians or anyone, anyone else really, um, other than those, you know, those kind of big corporations that I mentioned. Um, and another claim, and this is something admittedly that does come more from people inside the industry, um, but there is a worry, and we see it's put forward a lot, that um, if it becomes 
And it, I guess it depends on what you consider too onerous. But if it becomes too onerous for people to um, have bets or whatever, um, they, they will find a, a way to do it via other means. And some of those means will be via black market firms. Again, it, it's a point that's been put out there a lot. And I know there are different views on that. What's your response when you hear that point made? Um, yeah, I, I address it in the book to an extent. I, I don't dismiss that risk entirely. You know, you only have to look at, you know, 1920s America to see the prohibition of alcohol led to crime there. And people, you know, you can't stop people drinking ultimately. So they found other ways to do it. And therefore, you know, people who were criminals who were violent were offering that service. Um, you know, the parallel some people are suggesting is that there will be offshore firms who have no interest in uh, social responsibility, who don't pay taxes in the UK and all the rest of it, who will fill that void. What I do think is, A, nobody's talking about prohibition in this country. I think, you know, those who want reform are always going to argue for slightly more than they expect to get. And those in the industry are always going to express worries that the reforms are going to be more draconian than they actually are because everybody's lobbying here, right? So you present your best case and your worst case scenarios as being more extreme than they're actually likely to be. Because ultimately at the middle of this, politicians who like compromise um, and who like political solutions and, and fudge and don't generally like to, to come up with extremely um, you know, radical policies. This is quite a conservative with a small C country when it, when it comes to politics. Hmm. Um, so I guess my point is that I, I don't think the black market is a complete paper tiger, but I do think it is being massively overegged by the industry and that that's probably, or by the industry lobbyists rather, like the Betting and Gaming Council, and that is probably not helpful to the industry's overall cause because, you know, it's the boy who cried wolf effect, isn't it? Nobody believes these papers that are being written at the behest of the BGC talking about how many people um, are gambling on the black market. I don't believe them when I read them. They're just, you know, I could go into this, but there's larger, you know, parts of some of these papers that are completely implausible. Um, you know, and when they talk about the black market that's developed elsewhere, they're usually talking about countries where the regulation is much tighter than we're going to see here, at least in my view, unless something extremely surprising um, happens. Um, you know, and I've talked to people who worked in the industry. I talked to um, you know, Stuart Kenny, one of the founders of Paddy Power, who said every time we wanted something from the government, we would warn them about the, the black market. You know, he's, he's been there. He's been in those shoes. Um, you know, and he knows that people are going to talk up those kinds of threats because it will help them get what they want. And I'm also kind of sceptical about this idea that people are going to, you know, there are people out there saying, well, I don't want to give my bank details to the government. Fine, but you, you would be willing to give them to some offshore operating Curacao um, that might sell your details, you know, via a data list to, you know, some, some crooks on the dark web. I'm sceptical about how many people are going to go down that route. I'm not saying it won't happen, but I, I just think it's being over-egged and, and that a more sober assessment is probably needed. Um, just moving on to the subject of your book, um, you've been a business reporter for quite a long while and you've written on the gambling industry for a long time. Um, do you see yourself writing uh, more books down the line, possibly on this or, or other subjects? Um, yeah, I've thought about that a lot. Um, because, you know, I'd like to do it again. I'd like to do it better this time. I'm not saying my book is bad. 
<laughs> but like once you've done something for the first time, you learn about how you might have how you might have gone about it differently. I think the other thing is I wrote it during successive lockdowns while living in a flat because my house was having work done on it. You know, working in a tiny flat, restricted from going anywhere, writing from my toddler's bedroom, you know, it's pretty onerous. And I know there are people out there who are sort of saying, oh, you know, you're trying to profit from the gambling industry, believe me, or from, you know, gambling addiction and, and writing about that. Believe me, you know, if you want to make money, writing a non-fiction book is not a good way to spend your time um, in order to do that. Um, yeah, I've thought about it. I did think for a while whether it might be interesting to write a book about Denise Coates and the Coates family and Bet365. Um, but um, I don't know, they seem very, I'm not sure that there's that much exciting to go out, to go out there. They're very, very rich, but they're, I don't know, I'll probably get hammered for saying this, but a little bit boring. Um, so I don't, know, I don't know whether I would ever do that, but they're certainly interesting people to an extent, whether it warrants a book, I'm, I'm not quite so sure. And uh, we're coming to the end of this interview, um, and Nov covered a lot of grounds. This might seem like a question designed to attack, and I promise it's not. A lot of people would say, admittedly they'd be inside the industry, that they would say that you don't put across, um, let's say, both sides of this argument. Um, do you feel in your writing, in your work, that um, you've managed to get enough of the industry view across? And when I say that, I don't just mean what um, gambling operators might want you to say, but sort of... Um, views and experiences and and the nuance possibly that you might get from being on the other side of the fence regarding mm. two things i'd say to that one is i would say the book is is probably less like that than my news articles are and that's partly due to the nature of news as i talked about it earlier you know you uncover something usually it's something that's gone wrong you've got 600 words to cover it there's a lot of detail usually, and it's complicated. And at what point during that news story do, do, does a voice pop up saying, but, but you know, but I have a bet on the horses every week and I really enjoy it and I don't see why I should suffer because of this. It, it doesn't fit necessarily into how a news story is written. And that is partly the nature of the beast. And if you want to take issue with how news journalism is done, you know, that's absolutely a legit, legitimate thing to do, but it's not just me writing news stories that way. And, and it's not just gambling that's being written about that way. So I would say in the book, I, I, I try to present both sides of the story more. I think the other question is, who is going to come forward and who is coming forward and making those statements, right? If, you know, some anonymous guy on Twitter, you know, Colin164892 mm. uh, tweets me and says, why don't you put my view across? Well, realistically, I'm not going to quote Colin1964892, right? But I am going to quote the bodies that have been set up, um, you know, to give these kind of quotes. So that would be the Betting and Gaming Council would largely be who I would go for for the industry side. If there were to be a, I don't know, a coalition of um, professional gamblers or punters whose view was relevant to a story that I knew of, they would definitely be in consideration for being quoted in what I write. But I'm, I'm not aware of something like that. Or, you know, if something like that does exist, nothing that I know of that has the kind of credence or, you know, public recognition that would get it a voice within news stories. So, you know, I'm sympathetic to people who think that that side of the equation is not being put across, but the, the architecture isn't really in place 
for that side of the equation to be put across. And I guess what I would say is that if it's punters who feel that their arguments are not being heard, I mean, the piece I did about recently about stake factoring, um, as I mentioned earlier, I got a lot of positive response from, um, from gamblers about that. So I think people have to be real realistic about what you're going to see in a news story that is often, you know, 450 words with quite a lot of facts to get across. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, the news media gets hammered from all sides for being biased. I get people out there telling me I haven't been harsh enough on the industry. Mm. So you're never going to please everybody doing what I do. And, and if you are pleasing everybody, you're probably doing it wrong. I mean, it's part of my job to piss, piss, piss people off, I'm afraid to say. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes it's one group of people, sometimes it's another, but it's, it's everyone's turn eventually, I would say. And uh, I think that's a very strong note on which to finish off this uh, special betting people interview. Um, thank you so much for your time, Rob Davis. And you thank can you. Find, and you can find Jackpot, which I am sure is not being displayed properly on the screen, um, in all good bookshops and online. Thanks very much for being with us, and uh, we're very much appreciative of your time. Thank you. New betting people interviews are published every week at Star Sports. Exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.co.uk. Begambleaware.org. Over 18 only.